From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to a special edition of The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler. Normally, every two weeks, we come to you from the University of Wisconsin-Madison to tell the stories of surgeons and surgical innovations. And the episode you're about to hear was scheduled for release in a couple of weeks. But the news of the past week makes this conversation too important to hold on to. Like many surgeons, probably almost all of us, at least here in the United States, I've treated a lot of people with firearm injuries. And as a pediatric surgery fellow on the south side of Chicago just a few years ago, I treated way more than most. I've borne witness to the effect of modern gunnery on the bodies of children, and that's an experience that changes you and the way you view the world. It's an experience that taught me that our role as surgeons can't stop at the door of the hospital, that we can't just patch up the bullet wounds, but have to advocate for our patients to keep them from ever getting injured in the first place. So I was thrilled and proud when I heard that my professional organization, the American Pediatric Surgical Association, or APSA, had taken a stand on the issue of gun violence in American society with a position statement advocating for specific policies that have the chance to keep kids safe, from universal background checks to restrictions on high-capacity magazines to basic safeguards on firearms in the home, to the all-important funding of research into firearm injuries that will let us treat this epidemic like the disease it is. Joining me to talk about that APSA statement, which we'll link to from the show notes and on our website, are co-authors Marion Henry and John Petty. Dr. Henry is a pediatric surgeon at the University of Arizona and surgeon-in-chief at Banner Diamond Children's Hospital. She's a Navy veteran and the chair of the Health Policy and Advocacy Committee for APSA. John Petty is a pediatric surgeon at Wake Forest Baptist Hospital and chair of the APSA Trauma Committee. Our conversation centers on the role of surgeons as advocates and on how individual surgeons can make even small differences in the fights to keep our patients safe. In these challenging times, I hope you can take away something that will inform your own practice. I know I did. Now on with the show. Doctors Petty and Henry, thank you so much for joining us on the surgery set. It's a real pleasure to have you here actually from opposite ends of the country. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourselves quickly, let us know kind of where you are and what role you play in what we're going to be talking about today, which is the American Pediatric Surgical Association's new statement on firearms. I'm John Petty. I'm a pediatric surgeon at Bernard Children's Hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and have had the privilege of serving on the APSA Trauma Committee as the chair and uh, have worked closely with Dr. Henry, who will give her own introduction. One little word of background, you know, APSA has had a firearm statement, and the initial foray into that space was in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting. And so as a matter of general practice, the organization would like to update policy statements every five years. And as we started to work on it, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting occurred, and it just seemed very timely to sort of update what we believe, why we believe it, and some of the data that are behind it, and, and what that means for us as an organization. And that was then also coupled with a survey of APSA members to understand better our organization and, and what do its members really think about this as a sort of a fringe element that's very passionate about it, but isn't really representative of the organization as a whole. So those two things have sort of happened in the last few months 
and it's been a real privilege to work alongside Dr. Henry. She's been a dedicated partner and done a lot of the heavy lifting to make these things what they are. So you know, I'll defer to her to elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, Dr. Henry. So I am a pediatric surgeon at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, and currently the chair of the APSA Advocacy Committee. As Dr. Petty alluded to, APSA has had a firearm statement for several years, the first one being written after the tragedy at Sandy Hook, and it is policy to update them. And I feel that we really entered into this update right at a critical time period, because while people have been interested in the public health problem of firearm injuries, it really has been in the last year that I feel that surgeons and physicians in many organizations have become much more vocal and involved in this public health crisis that we have right now. And we certainly hear a lot more about um, firearm-related violence, but it's also happening a lot more. And as pediatric trauma surgeons, we are at the forefront of it all, and we see the injuries, and we see the devastation, and we see the the deaths as well as the long-standing problems that arise out of these injuries afterwards. And so, it does make sense for us as an organization to really advocate for action and change. A statement is just the beginning of that that work. And so, you know, it was it was time to update it, but then it's also become a very timely issue as many more people and many more voices are being raised on this issue. I feel as though there you often see our professional organizations come out with statements about various topics, everything from how our billing codes should work to these sort of broader political statements or public health statements. But I do feel as though recently they've taken on a different tone from the American College of Surgeons and Ron Mayer taking a stand against violence and and violence prevention as part of the role of trauma surgeons and the role of surgeons in a community in his presidential address last year to, you know, our smaller society, which maybe doesn't carry as much weight in terms of number of members, but is the group of people who are taking care of these children who are coming in shot. And I feel like the the way that that you guys have crafted this statement is incredibly powerful and and much more powerful than I've seen historically in these often sort of anodyne policy statements that tend to get sort of full of acronyms and are clearly kind of written by people who don't want to offend anybody. And not that this statement is offensive. I think it's just very powerfully written. And can you talk a little bit about the process of drafting it and, and sort of what you were able to take away from the, the polls of the membership to sort of give you a sense of how and what stance the organization as a whole should take? This is obviously a political hot potato, so to speak, in that there are very strong opinions on both ends of the spectrum when it comes to anything related to firearms. We were fortunate to have the first draft of the statement, which I think was very well written and handled the whole question very well. You know, we're not talking about firearms themselves, but we are talking about injuries that children get related to firearms. In order to deal with the crisis of injuries, you have to talk about the guns themselves. We did try to approach it from a public health approach. So not anything that could be construed as against the Second Amendment, but a true public health approach. What do we know about this already? One of the problems is, of course, that there has not been a ton of research on 
this because of constraints. You know, the Dickey Amendment really did put constraints on the research that's being done. Even just raising awareness about that is a major point of the firearm statement. I think the survey of the membership really helped us, though, to be able to move forward with some of our statements and be a little bit stronger than we or other organizations have been in the past because we've always been concerned about alienating some of our membership. But by doing this survey of the membership, we really showed that look, the vast majority of the membership is in support of these stances and these positions. And therefore, we can actually take a little bit stronger stance than we maybe have in the past because most of the membership does support it. And yes, there were some naysayers and some people who disagree with things we have stated or or things we might have neglected to bring up. But overall, we have a membership that is very supportive of the positions that we took in the in the statement. Yeah, and just looking at the survey, more than half of members said that it was a highest priority for advocacy, that firearm reduction injury, almost half of people said that was their highest priority. 35 additional percent said it was a high priority, but not necessarily the highest. 90% say that uh, healthcare professionals should be allowed to counsel patients on gun-related injuries. 80% say physicians and healthcare providers should counsel their patients on safe firearm ownership. There's a real plurality, it sounds like, in our organization around fundamental safety things around firearms. Yeah, and I think some of that is this was really geared towards pediatric surgeons and sort of by proxy pediatric victims. So and, and we're not constitutional lawyers or policy experts or what have you, but if there is a rallying point for gun safety in our country, can it not be around the children? You know, they're not, generally speaking, combatants or owners or buyers or members of organizations or that sort of thing too, but the bullets come their way nonetheless. So I think there's just an element of being a pediatric surgeon involved in trauma care that really does sort of stir you in a way of all the children are at some level innocent bystanders and is, you know, that this is not something that is generally an act of constitutional freedom for a child to have or whatever is behind the bullet coming their way to be involved in that. So I, I think there probably is a little bit of probably more uniformity around it. And I, I would say APSA as an organization has not sort of always been sort of leading with this sort of thing. I mean, you think of the things that are often discussed in abstracts and such at the meeting and, you know, exciting sort of novel things like fetal surgery or minimally invasive surgery sort of had its day in the sun. Those feel very surgical, but something like this hasn't been in the general assumption that this is what an organization like ours does. So to put it out there and ask and to have the feedback, it just clarifies that actually this is an area that you know, 90% of our members are involved in trauma care and something that they care a lot about. So that then will, I hope, open the door for us to do more. And really the idea with this statement was to, if you only had sort of one document for our members, hold on to this one because there's so much in the bibliography that if you're interested in one of the areas, it's pretty well referenced and it will launch you to other resources that hopefully are the basis for some of the things that we said, and, and we don't expect that every APSA member will endorse all 11 points or what have you, but there, there really is something that I think everybody can get behind in it. And if you want to 
give a talk on this, great. You know, you've got resources built in there that can give you statistics or point you to what are the policies in your state? How many school shootings have there been in your state in the last few years? You can sort of go there from this document, but if you want to build a better pediatric trauma center or start doing stop the bleed education or that sort of thing, you know, I think there's a way for everybody to sort of say, may not be on for the the whole package A to Z, but there is something in here that matters to me and in a way that I can connect to this and get involved. So that's part of the idea behind this is everybody's busy. Nobody has the time to comb through world literature on pediatric firearm injury. And, and I wouldn't pretend that this is the definitive document, but between all of the authors who really cared about it. And then also we had some editors that were pretty intent about, you know, the claims we were making and what was behind it and that sort of thing too, that, that ultimately strengthened it. So it's something I hope will serve the members for however they want to move into this area that isn't the beginning and end of it all, but it's a good place to start. I was really struck by the way that policy statement, and we could, we'll link to the statement itself, you know, all 16 pages plus references of it. I mean, because it is a a really comprehensive document it takes stands on a number of the sort of different facets of the firearm debate and and the treatment of firearms injuries as a public health issue but the way that it was introduced to us as a member you know i got an email saying this is our statement on firearms and then it, it had a call to action which i had not seen before something that I thought was really great, which was it said, you know, it's not enough to like read this document and know that this is APSA's statement. It's it's your job to now take this and and do a talk or have a host a podcast. I, I read that and, and emailed you guys. So now this has been out there for a little while. How, what sort of response have you had? Have you heard back from the membership? Are they are they using this tool? Yeah, that's a very good question. I personally haven't gotten a, any great information from people individually about whether they're using this tool. We do have an advocacy session coming up at the APSIM 50th meeting, and I'm hoping during that session we may get a sense more of how people have responded to this. I think it does give some practical steps to action, and I think that giving people the information and the knowledge makes them more comfortable to speak up, to be involved in movements. This is our lane. You know, I have had someone tell me a story of they felt more empowered to ask questions about gun ownership in their clinic. And when the parents took a little bit of offense to that, they persisted. And then the child revealed that, yes, there was a gun in the home. And yes, they knew where it was hidden. And that, yes, they had played with it. And the parent just sat there stunned. Mm. And the provider was able to then talk about safe storage and gun locks and prove to this parent right there, like, okay, you might be really mad at me for even bringing up the topic, but I may have just saved your kid's life or a friend's life or, so, you know, because you might not want to bring this up, but your kid knows where your hidden gun is and that it's unlocked and they've played with it and they just revealed that to you. And so I think having a, a powerful statement like this lets people start to incorporate little things. It's not saying go out there and change the world, get rid of this, you know, do what it is you need to do, but it does empower people to look at the research, ask some questions, do something that you can do in your own organization or your own location or, you know, even just for yourself as a parent, ask about guns when you send your kid to your next sleepover party, you know, 
little things and with each little step we make it a little bit further down the road. I've been sort of steeped in the gun violence world, mostly as a result of doing my pediatric surgery fellowship on the south side of Chicago, where we just saw <laughs> an endless stream of gunshot victims. The the sheer breadth of the policy initiatives around gun violence was still surprising to me and as they're sort of enumerated in this document. Everything from preserving the right for physicians to talk to their patients about guns, to promoting limits on magazine sizes, everything from these sort of physician let you know regulation things to very technical specifications about what should and should not be a legal firearm. As the person who's leading the APSA's advocacy efforts, how do you engage with that breadth of topic? You can't march to the hill for, for every <laughs> one of these every day. So how do you decide? How do you triage? How do you sort of structure the organization's advocacy efforts in this area? One thing that I learned early on as I undertook this role was you have to learn your audience, learn what is a realistic accomplishment. When we go talk to people on the Hill, and I have done that with the American College of Surgeons, and we have pediatric surgeons from our committee who have done it with the AAP, in both instances, in dealing with firearm injury crisis, both times, both organizations, you know, the major major thing they ask for up there is funding for research. And why is that the major focus? Well, you can't go in and ask for some of these other things and think that you're going to get bipartisan support because they are very controversial. What's an assault weapon? How do you define it? In some places, you can get background checks extended, and some states have had very good results with that. Other states are going to be a lot harder, and I live in a state where that would be very challenging for me to go and make any impact there. But starting the conversation at research, we need to have more research on why is this happening? Where is it happening? You know, how is it happening? Which weapons are being used? That's a place that most people can agree on. Like, we don't have the research and we need to have more research. But then if you're in a different community where you can take greater strides forward, this document gives other areas that we as an organization support so that if you're in an area where you can make pushes for some of these other aspects of it, great, go for it. Here's our statement and our support for it, and here are the data to support it. That's the way to, to move forward on it is it's such a multifaceted problem that you can't just have one area where you focus on, but each person maybe only can choose one area and move forward with that, and a lot of that is knowing your audience and knowing who it is that you're speaking with and, and what your environment is and how you're going to make changes. And then as we as a whole society take tiny steps forward, we'll be able to keep pushing the, uh, the people who are in the back, back, straggling behind, can be pulled or pushed forward by the parts of the society that are being a little bit more advanced in their dances. You know, I wouldn't short sell the sort of cultural shift that's at stake or that we can be a part of. And you think about what happened with tobacco in our country, and there were certainly kind of rules and laws that came in, but there was also this sort of cultural shift towards smoking and how that was viewed and what that looked like with other people who were at risk besides the smoker. And I just think that there's you know work to be done in this country along that way, that the message doesn't have to be, we're going to change the laws and take the guns away. And, and I'm not sure that that will get very far or that it has in the past. You know, you sort of ask about how, how's this sort of 
affected how people do what they do. I, I would just say that for me, having worked through coming up with this, it's changed my conversations with patients and families when they come in for hernias and other things. You know, I'll just tell them, you know, one of the hats I wear here is that I am the director of the trauma center, and so I care about safety for you and your kid. And I'll ask about bike helmets and seat belts and car seats, and I'll say, and, and is there a gun in the home? And then that just becomes it becomes enfolded with this message of, I care about your child. Mm. It isn't about, I'm going to write a letter to our senators or the NRA this or, you know, magazine size that, but it really becomes very uh, personal and comes from a, a standpoint of, of really safety and, and it opens the door. So, you know, I learned from put, help to put this together about what's involved with safe storage. Storing the ammunition and the gun separately, having a gun out of sight, locking up both. I mean, each sort of piece of that adds safety to it. So it isn't just the gun lock, but these other things too. And the other thing that really came through sort of working it through was just how big of a problem suicide is. Like that's very mm. seldom part of the national conversation about guns and gun safety, but it's a huge mortality. And that matters to children too, because it isn't just safe storage for accidental deaths, but for these sort of acts of self-harm, it's such a lethal way to move in that direction that the storage matters. But also, there may be a time in your life or in the life of your family where things are going great and it just doesn't seem like such a big deal that you have a gun available, but we don't all stay in the same emotional space for our whole lives. And maybe there are times where people in the home are angry or are sad or whatever, and that changes. And, you know, if the thought is we have this as a home protection sort of safety sort of thing, just by raw numbers, you're 43 times more likely to have a death in the home from either an accidental death, a suicide, or a homicide than you are to protect your home from the bad guys. And just that sheer mortality difference with the thought being having a gun makes the home safer, it just gives you a platform to talk about things like suicide and and what does that mean for your kid and things are going great now, but but maybe that isn't always the case and let's, let's think about that too. So that, those two things, sort of what's involved with safe storage and then just this huge chunk of suicides that are related to guns are things that, that I learned from, helping put this together and have changed my conversations with patients and families. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. The This is not just a document that sort of lays out a legislative agenda. There are lots of people out there laying out legislative agendas, but this is a, a document that sort of lays out the scope of a problem that then we uniquely are capable of taking to the patient level. Every time when this comes up and every time you see in the news the way people are covering gun violence, you know, I find myself thinking like, oh, you, you have no idea what it's actually like to take care of a patient to these people who are sort of pontificating on the laws, this and the laws, that. I'm like, you've never had blood on your shoes. And, and it's easy to forget that most people don't have that exposure and don't have the privilege and the horror of being witness to the actual effect of a projectile on tissue. Um, and I think that gives us as a surgeon such a unique perspective and a unique voice and, and a unique credibility in these discussions, be they with legislators or, or be they with patients. I think that is why we, we really need to be involved in advocacy as 
surgeons is that we live these stories every day, whether it's the devastating trauma in the trauma bay and then the talk to the parent as so eloquently described by Peter Masiakos in the quiet room, you know, when you have to tell a parent that their child didn't survive or whether it's the patient that we see back over and over and over and over for the years of crippling effects of their wounds and the the G-tubes, the trachs, the sacral decubitus ulcers that they develop because they're in a wheelchair and they can't move and they don't shift properly, the complex access to care issues that these children have. And then when they outgrow their access to care because they suddenly turn 18 or 21 or 26, depending on their health insurance. We see these stories and participate in these stories every day. And we have to tell the stories so that the lawmakers, who actually are the ones who can impact the change by changing the laws, so that they can understand because they're not there. They don't see it. They don't know the information, but we do. We are the experts on it because we are the ones taking care of these patients and these families and having those conversations in our clinic and realizing that families don't have adequate education about how to safely store their guns or that they can get free gun locks from the police department or any of these information. But we're that link. We're the link between the stories, the patients, the victims, the families, and the legislators or the public policy groups that can really help impact change in our country. I feel like as physicians, we really, we bear that responsibility of telling our patients stories because we want to make children's lives better through our actions. And that's not just through a surgical procedure, but you know, if we can prevent them from ever needing that surgical procedure, that's even better. And we've done that with car seat laws. We've done that with seatbelt laws. We can do that by impacting change here. I think that's such a, a powerful statement. And I really do think it's something new that we recently have started to sort of realize that we have a voice in this and that we can advocate not just for changes to the way that we get reimbursed in insurance, but that we can advocate on behalf of our patients and do that vocally and openly. And this statement does does that better than any I've read so far from any other group. So I, I was so pleased to, to see it. For surgeons who, or anyone listening to this podcast who thinks, I want to change something about firearms tomorrow because I've listened to this, where, where, do, where do you start? You know, one would be just to find out what the, the state of your state is. You know, that there is at some level a hodgepodge of different laws around the country and, and what's going on in your state and what can you, you know, I think we have a platform as pediatric surgeons to speak to things like safe storage and ages for access. You know, I think that the pediatric side of, of those sorts of things. So one would be just to know what's going on in your state. And then the other I would say is to get involved with some real world day-to-day things. So you know, if you're not involved in pediatric trauma or you've got pediatric trauma going on, I would say to the extent that, that the place where you work becomes better at taking care of these children, that's real world advocacy and using your skills to so to use energies in that. And then, you know, just as I've sort of shared my own experience of 
just being willing to have conversations on patients that are there for unrelated reasons, but couched in the framework of, I really care about your child and we'll take care of the hernia and that's important too, but I'm just going to mention these things. And, you know, the pediatricians have been better at this than we have in surgery because we've been generally more problem focused. But as we kind of see more and more of what's out there and how can we kind of turn off the faucet rather than just bailing out the water, I think that's an area that we could probably do more in. And I guess the last one has to do with injury prevention, you know, being involved with all injury prevention, but I think the Stop the Bleed program is not purely in injury prevention, but it certainly relates to that. And, you know, as I've been more involved with that through the trauma center, Stop the Bleed was born out of the Sandy Hook shooting, you know, which generated the heart for consensus that came up with it. So it becomes its own form of advocacy that this was related to a tragedy. And, and look, it's, it's national and international as you're teaching it, not just for gunshots, it's for blast injuries or dog maulings or table saw injuries or, or whatever, but it just gives a an opportunity to talk about trauma, pediatric trauma, if you're involved with teaching this to people who are around children, but it really becomes a talking point to sort of say, and what about this? And um, here's something positive that you can do and, and get out there. But it, it becomes just another way at the sort of cultural grassroots level to get the conversation out there and, and help stimulate people to think about this and to feel like they have something to offer in, heaven forbid, a, a situation where they might be able to help somebody with that. I think in the broader sense of how do, you know, how do I do advocacy? How do I get involved in advocacy? I think there are growing opportunities to learn more about what's out there and what people want to do. You know, for us in the world of pediatric surgery, we have both the American College of Surgeons and the American Academy of Pediatrics, which have very large advocacy arms. And in those arms have a lot of educational resources on how do I write a letter to my senator? How do I write a letter to the editor to express my views? Because that's a really good first step is write a letter to the editor in your local paper. Similarly, state chapters of those organizations, for the most part, also have advocacy arms. And so, you know, reach out to your state chapter and try to get involved. And, and they are going to know the best information on what's going on at your state level because the other organizations, they look very broadly at federal level and how do we impact, you know, nationally, but your state organizations will have much more insight into the, the individual laws at your state and also what you can or cannot impact at your state. My state is not a state that likes anything to be mandated. So, you know, going in and saying we want to mandate X, Y, or Z, like we want to mandate helmets is, is hard to do. So knowing that and knowing how we can impact change in, in other ways. So state medical organizations also are a good way to find out about that. And then there's a, there's a fair amount of literature in the medical education literature about advocacy in medical education. Canada has tried to really make it a fundamental aspect of medical education in Canada. There's a, quite a bit in the literature about how do I learn to be an advocate? Like, what does it mean to be an advocate? How do I learn to be an advocate? And I think starting with our statement and learning more about this topic in particular is a good point for firearm violence. But if it's something else that you're really concerned about in your community or your area, 
then going back to, okay, how do I do this? What are the fundamental steps? It's really learning who's involved, what's the information for your local community or state specifically, and then taking small steps and looking for partners in the community because there are usually nonprofit organizations. There are big name organizations like Safe Kids Worldwide who are working on all sorts of different aspects of advocacy for children's health. But there'll be smaller organizations in your own community as well and trying to partner with them. They might really want a physician who can inform them or provide an expert opinion or be that expert at a local gathering or meeting. And specifically for firearm violence, Mom Demands Action is a big one that gains a lot of headlines, but is very big on this issue. But for other advocacy topics, there are other organizations out there. And so finding out, you know, how to join with your local chapters of whichever that organization might be is another route for advocacy is those partnerships, I think, are very important. When we join our voices together, we are even more impactful than just each individual. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for the, the call to action, for all your work on this comprehensive statement, and then you know, for the reminder that we as surgeons have a voice, not just as citizens, but as experts in things, and we not only can use them, but, but really are obliged to, to tell these stories. I think that's just such an important point. So thank you both so much. On our next episode, I speak with Dr. Che Kalura, a former chief resident here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I caught up with him before he left to start a career in private practice general surgery to talk about night float, the strange practice of practicing surgery only at night. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. 